All right, so today we have Jim Chong on the podcast, um, otherwise known as the Lazy Canadian Investor. Jim became a millionaire by investing in U.S. stocks and real estate, and he was working in finance. Uh, I started that, actually engineering. I was in engineering. Yeah. yeah. So Jim was in engineering and then started investing in U.S. stocks and real estate. But I'll let him tell you more about that. Yeah. Uh, thanks for having me, Mo. And yeah, when I started. Uh, first of all, I was born I w- as the first generation born here. So my parents were immigrants. So mm-hmm. born here, poor, uh, just sort of had to like just grind until I got into a university, right? Because that was the goal for the parents. My parents was like, you have to go to university here. That's why we came here. Mm-hmm. And um, when I was 15, I was like, why am I doing the grinding? Because they were like cracking the whip and like very adamant about schooling, high grades, you know, top tier university, top tier profession, all that, the whole, the whole thing. And they, they just said, you know, that's how you get a corporate job, a fortune 500 job. Then you get a really good salary and then you, you become financially independent. Mm -hmm. So I was like, so this is about money, right? We're talking about money, (laughs) right? So they were like, they didn't want to say yes, but then they said like, I guess so. Yeah, it's about money, right? And I was like 14 at the time or 15. Oh, so you actually had this conversation with them. Like, Early, yeah, because yeah. the the grinding happened um, for three years now, and it kept going, right? And I was mm-hmm. like, when is this going to end, and why are we doing this? Like, yeah. what am I doing? And once they told me it was that, and I just said, like, oh, so it's about money. So why don't we just start studying money now? Because I'm not learning anything about money in school. Yeah. So why don't we start studying money now? And even if I follow this process for 10 years, which you're telling me it's going to take, I'll, at least I'll know a bit more about money after 10 years. They're like, it doesn't work that way. Just stop asking these dumb questions and then just follow the plan. Mm-hmm. Right. Because so that's what they knew as to like having a better life. That's right. So at that point, I didn't want to, you don't disobey your parents by speaking out, right? Speaking back to them. Yeah. But after they had that conversation with me telling me that don't worry about it, it's not a big deal. Just follow the plan and don't ask these dumb questions. I said, they can't be right. It, it, like I, I love my parents and I sort of idolize them, but I said, this can't be right because I was working for four bucks an hour, right? As a dishwasher at St. Hubert's and it was really tough work. And um, I said, I just don't think that multimillionaires are working millions of hours at $4 an hour. Like I just don't think that's happening, <laughs> yeah. right? And number one and number two, um, I studied a lot. So everything I learned was from books. Uh, there was no internet and all that stuff. So I said, someone in the history of mankind must have gotten rich and they must have wrote, wrote it down. It's in a book somewhere. Someone wrote it down. Like th- It can't be possible that we've gone through centuries of existence and no one wrote down anything about money. Yeah. So at that point, I just dropped my school. My grades started crashing and then I just started reading finance books. And this started when you were 14. Yeah, longer. 14. First book, uh, Peter Lynch. Uh, one up on Wall Street. And I love that book. Yeah, it's it's That's fantastic. A great book. It's it's an amazing. I recommend book. that book to anyone that so, wants to learn about finances or investing. Exactly, and the reason I picked it when I was fourteen was because it read like English, like regular English. It wasn't like formulas <laughs> and like you know calculations. It was just like he spoke to you as if one of my you know social studies teachers would speak to me, and I was like, yeah. this is amazing. And then that led me down the rabbit hole. Okay, so from 14, you realize that the plan your parents laid out or the path they had wasn't it for what you wanted, which was like financial independence and it's about money. Just freedom. I just wanted freedom. I didn't want to work. Like I was working dishwashing and I figured all the other jobs are going to be similar to like dishwashing. You're just going to be crapped on 24-7 for, according to my parents' plan, 40 years. And I'm like, no, I I can't do that. Okay, so from there, what was... What was the next step? So yeah. 14 years old, you're like, all right, this isn't what I want. Yeah. And then how did you go about getting to the point you're at, you're at today? So, Just walk us through your journey. So that was, uh, so I've had, I've had jobs. So mm-hmm. I'll, I'll talk about what happened. So after high school, my grades started tanking. I eventually failed second year university. Like my grades just kept tanking because every new course that was added to my course load every semester, I was like, this is not helping with money. This is not helping with money. And I became disconnected. I was like, this is not helping. And then I eventually failed. And what, what, what did you study? So what university did you go to and what, what did you major in? Good question. So I went to University of Toronto and I enrolled in engineering science okay. because that was what my parents sort of was looking for. 
Um, it's also a very reputable, good program. So yeah, like, so they like that, right? <laughs> yeah. The diploma looks good. You know, I can I can tell my friends and my my brothers and sisters that my son got into University of Toronto. Yeah, that's that the hardest program. Yeah, yeah. it's, no, it's very traditional yeah, immigration, so. immigrant <laughs> parents kind of things. Like it's the same fle- flexing the degrees. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they flex my failing on a second year, but, but uh, they omit that part. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the story. So yeah, I failed second year. And my parents, I never seen my mom cry before, but I think that was the first time she cried, that I've seen her cry. So anyway, um, I got back on the wagon, finished the degree. I was like, fine, get the degree. So at that point, I started a company. So my friends and I were all engineers. We said, let's just start a company. The internet just started. So, you know, CompuServe, AOL Online, that was like the beginning of everything in terms of online. There was no podcasts or eBooks or like, there was nothing of that, but it was just like people using Mozilla, which was the browser at the time, to put up web pages, like dumb web pages. Mm-hmm. So web web two, yeah, <laughs> yeah. People. So this was like early two thousands, late nineties. That was ninety six, ninety five, ninety six. Okay. Just right? for context for people listening. Yeah, watching. yeah. And that was so funny because we were going to start a, a company based off the internet, and we asked our comp, uh, computer science professor. We mm-hmm. said like, "Hey, you know, it, the internet." is available to military and education. Do you think it'll be available to the masses so that we can like do something with that? And he was like, no, military and education only. It'll never go out to the masses. Really? That's what he said. That's crazy. And he was like the head of the department. I was like, oh, that's so depressing. <laughs> but then, you know, he was wrong. And then the internet started being used by everybody. So we started a company there. Uh, it was downtown in Toronto, um, King Street, 510 King Street West. And it was called um, Nth Dimension, as in like, third dimension, fourth dimension, nth dimension. And we subletted from a bigger tech company called North American Media Engine. So they were doing work and just throwing us stuff because they needed help. It was a huge boom in the internet. Everyone wanted to get on the internet. So we worked with companies like um, like Deutsche Bank and like uh, like, um, National Institutes of Health, Massachusetts Mutual, big insurance companies, media companies. Mm -hmm. And I started getting money from doing that just like the business and what were you guys doing for them they just wanted to get on the internet and they wanted us to build a content management system so picture people who were not familiar with the internet they're working at these big companies yeah management wanted them to update company information using the internet but they didn't know anything so we had to build them like a microsoft word for the internet so they can dump all their files type in letters and and Mm. publish it Right now, you have a lot of editors that you can just build your own website. Yeah. But they didn't have that then. They had nothing. So we had to build that tool for the big company so they can roll out to their legal department, their press releases, their, their documents, PDFs, their images, their, their music or whatever, and push it out. So we built that tool for them. And we just did it over and over and over again. Okay. So that was your first business or like your first um yeah, so at 26, I was like making over 100 grand back in 96, 97. From that business? Yeah. It was like I was, I was pulling in like over 100 grand a year. And at that time, I guess, you know, that was really good because most of the people who graduated from engineering were pulling in 40, 37, right? Mm. Um, but the first year was really rough. We couldn't get any sales. It was really tough. So the first year starting the business, I made 22,000. Yeah. which was really low, a lot lower. And all my friends were like, oh, you should have gotten an engineering job. I got paid 37. <laughs> you're only getting 22. But very quickly after the one year, we got more clients and we all of a sudden, you know. Yeah, your trajectory figures. went up where, well, theirs probably just. Yeah, did the normal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. So once I had that, I knew what I needed to do. I said, um, I understood because I read Peter Lynch and I read Warren Buffett. You don't work for money. Like, I never worked for money. I, know, I don't care about my salary. I don't care about raises. I don't care about promotions. Mm-hmm. All I care about is getting money to work, right? So whatever money I made from this business or from working, because I eventually started working as, like, a salaried employee, I just made it go to work. I started buying stocks, which represent businesses, and focused on transitioning that because I knew eventually – the investments would start making money. It would start working. It would make a dollar, ten dollars, twenty dollars, hundred dollars, ten thousand, and eventually, it would pay for everything that I spend money on, and then I wouldn't need to work anymore. At that point, I can do whatever I want. So that mm-hmm. was the goal. Okay, so 
at 26, you started the company. And what was your first, um, what was your first investment? So how did you first get into investing? And just walk us through that. So you, you were making 100K. How did, how did that business go? Did you guys exit? Did it just shut yes. down? That's a fantastic question. So North American Media Engines, our parent, or I guess subletting, uh, landlord, whatever, yeah. eventually bought us, right? So we got shares of that company. And then we ran it for like six years. And then, as you know, the tech wreck, everything blew up. Mm-hmm. So in six years, we rode the wave up where my shares were worth like, I don't know, 1.5 million. And then it went to zero, right? Okay. Damn, so. that's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> oh so at like late 20s, I was like worth 1.5. And then I was worth zero. Literally when Nortel blew up and all that stuff. So everything died. But... I didn't rely on the share, shares because I took money and I started investing. So the first stock I bought was called King World Productions. So King World Productions, again, I used, Warren Buffett has outlined how to value stocks. It's a simple idea. It's like this. If you see a business throwing off a dollar a year, right, mm-hmm. and you believe that the business is strong, it's been running for decades, and it'll continue to run for the next five, ten years, it makes a dollar a year without fail. All you have to determine after you determine that the business is stable is how much you're going to pay for that business. Because if you pay $1,000, right? Let's say you have the business and I want to buy it. You make a dollar a year. You say, I want $1,000, Jim. I'll say, forget it. I have to wait 1,000 years to get my money back at a dollar. It's not, it doesn't make sense, right? But this business was making, say, the dollar a year, right? Mm -hmm. And it was selling for... $1.50. It's like nothing. Right? So I was like, I'm getting this business, and in five years, it'll be free. Right? Mm -hmm. Sorry, I was selling for like five bucks. Yeah. So five bucks. Right. So in five years, it'll be free. But in addition to that, when you look at their bank statements, which is their balance sheet, they had a dollar in their bank. So if you bought the company for a dollar, for five dollars. You're getting a dollar back because in their bank, they already had a dollar. So within four, four years, years I would have got my money back. Yeah. So I bought the company and I was tested immediately because the stock just collapsed. And that taught me that when prices get better, you should buy more because I, would, I didn't know if I did something wrong. Mm-hmm. So I didn't buy anything. So when the, when the stock collapsed, I was like, what happened? Did I do you something panicked. wrong? Yeah. I panicked, but I didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. I held the stock. And then after a year... CBS came along and says, oh, we found this company, Kimmel Productions. You know, they produce the Oprah Winfrey show, Wheel of Fortune, Jeopardy, and Inside Edition, all these amazing assets. We want to buy them. And they bought them out for like, I don't know, something like $10 or $15, something ridiculous, right? So they, they bought the whole company and then they took me out. So then I was like, oh, this is, this is how it works. So I started to do that. I started to look for predictable, strong companies, Oakley, the sunglass maker, Marvel was a comic book publisher, um, all these companies, and Berkshire Hathaway, because obviously everything I, I did is based on Warren Buffett. Mm-hmm. And I just started picking these companies outside of tech. See, when I was in tech in the 90s, every, all my engineering friends invested everything into tech. JDS, Uniphase, Nortel, you know, this, all these companies that all blew up and went to zero, right? Mm-hmm. I looked at the businesses. They were equivalent to these businesses generating a dollar a year, but they were selling for $1,000, $2,000. You would need to wait like until the next coming in order to get your money back, right? So I was like, I can't, I can't touch that stuff. So I looked for the little, the cheap companies that had a long history and I did that and they thought I was stupid. They were like, you know, I focused on one company that was paying an 8% dividend. They're like, oh, I'm making 80%. You know, you're only making eight. And I'm like, you know, I just feel more comfortable. Yeah. And then they all crashed and burned. I kept my investments and I just kept going. So what is it you look for? So when you see a company, like what, what are some key metrics or things that you look for where you're like, this is a good buy? So the company needs to have almost like a lock on their business. It's almost like a monopoly, but it's not a monopoly. Like anyone can get in, but mm-hmm. it would cost really a lot of money to get in. Like, for example, King World Production had relationships with, uh, you know, like Oprah Winfrey, um, with with uh, Jeopardy, with, with Wheel of Fortune. Yeah. Like, if you and I wanted to go to Oprah and say, listen, forget these guys who've been selling your show for 10 years. I'll do it. You know, I'll, I'll get your shows out to the TV networks. The chances are they have a really good relationship, and they did, 
And they've been working together for 10 years. They'd be like, you know, I'm not going to change anything. I'm making a lot of money. They're making a lot of money. It'd be very difficult to break into that business, which is why CBS bought them. Because CBS probably thought, maybe we can muscle in. Because capitalism works like that, right? If there's an opening, they'll take it. They're like, listen, it's just easier to buy them. Then we yeah. get we get all their relationships, we get all their contracts, we get everything. Yeah, right? and you can't like produce another Oprah Winfrey show or Real Fortune. Like you could try to replicate it, but exactly. people love it for what it is. So exactly right. So they have to have something what Warren Buffett calls a moat or a very strong brand. Where even if you increase the price, the the biggest indicator is you can increase the price up to a point, but you can increase the price quite a bit, and customers won't leave. They just mm. won't leave. Nike has that. Apple has that. You know, King World at the time had that. Marvel at the time had that. They had the dominant comic book share, right? Yeah. DC was there too, but Marvel, everyone wanted Marvel stuff. So it's like that. It's sort of like Oakley was the same thing. If you want a, a pair of sport glasses at the time, Mission Impossible glasses, this and that, yeah. you got to buy Oakley. You, you can buy a knockoff, but people will be like, that's not an Oakley. You know, mm. that's not a, a Nike. That is not an Apple, right? So that kind of customer loyalty where they have complete pricing power. Right then, the next things you look for are they've been making money hand over fist for a long period of time. I'm not looking for flash in the pans, one hit wonders. Yeah, you got to be making money for at least ten years straight. Ten years straight, I think, is the minimum. Right, because if it shows that you're making money sometime and sometimes you're not, it's too unpredictable. So mm. they have a strong business, rabid fans, and they're making money consistently. And then the next thing you look for is debt. Because if you don't have debt, if you don't have bank debt, you can't go bankrupt. The worst thing is going bankrupt, mm-hmm. right? Your business could be great, then something happens and you're Silicon Valley Bank and you die, <laughs> right? Well, that's a run on the bank. That's a bit different. But yeah. your debt could kill you because interest rates go up or whatever, right? So I look for very low debt. So they're never hampered. It's sort of like looking for a home that's a million dollars, but it doesn't have 1.5 million in loans against it. It's like a million dollar home. It has like, you know, 50 grand in debt. I'm like, okay, they're using that to fund operations. It's not going to kill them, right? Mm-hmm. They can pay that off. They got cash. So you're looking for those type of, those three things. And then the last thing I put on myself was that I hated the fact that when I bought shares, like 100 uh, shares of ABC company, yeah. I had no control. No control. You have no control. They can do whatever they want. They can, they can burn the money, buy a private jet. They can go into different businesses. They can just burn. It's not their money. The CEO just runs the company, right? If he wants to take like lavish vacations with the, with the company money, there's nothing you can do about it. Mm-hmm. So then I added on insider holding. You have to, the people running the business needs to hold at least 25% of the stock. So if they're going to burn themselves, if they're going to burn me, they're going to burn themselves like a thousand times worse, right? Because, and what I noticed is that if you actually own 25%, of an Oakley, of a King Will production, of a Marvel, of a Disney, you're not going to like buy a private jet. Your executives yeah. might say, we need a private jet. They're like, no, you're flying coach and you're going there tomorrow. Yeah, you're going to be a lot more um, frugal and attentive of where the money's going. <laughs> exactly, because yeah. it's your money, mm-hmm. right? That so, makes a lot of sense. Right, so I, I added on the layer of insider holding. Like Warren Buffett owned a huge chunk of Berkshire Hathaway. If you asked him, like, hey, why don't we just go on, like, vacations and, like, party here and party there? He'd be like, why? why like, <laughs> what's the return on investment of that? <laughs> they always ask that, right? Like, the Buckle. The Buckle is another company. They make denim products. Yeah. Um, they rent family business for 50 years. So I look for that type of stuff, those four things. So you invested in stocks. You made a good chunk of money there. And then you transitioned into real estate? Yes. Why did you decide real estate if you were doing well with stock? So a lot of people ask that question. And they don't understand how I invest. So people think like, oh, I, I want to invest in stocks. I'm just going to do it. Mm-hmm. The market doesn't work that way. Capitalism doesn't work that way. Capitalism doesn't just give you a deal because you want it. It's, like, it's not like getting a phone. Like, I want an iPhone. I'm just going to go get one. Capitalism works that sometimes you get a deal. If you can identify it, then you make the money. If you can't, I can't help you. It's sort of like the best analogy is like grocery shopping, right? So when, when I was a student, I used to go grocery shopping. Uh, at the time, I used to buy like eggs and chicken, you know. Mm-hmm. If I wanted to splurge, I'd buy chicken, but mostly be eggs because I had no money. So that would be my protein. So yeah. I buy eggs. And you'd go there, if you go to the grocery store every week to buy eggs, you would see the price. The similar idea is like you would know what the price is. 
You know, if you never shopped for eggs, you wouldn't know the price. But you go there, let's say every time you go there, it's like three bucks, three bucks for a dozen, three bucks for a dozen. And you kind of get used to that. And then when you see eggs at like $1.99, you're like, that's a sale. Yeah. And you know right away because you've been following it. But for someone new, let's say I was a new student, and I said, that's a deal, $2 carton for eggs, they'd be just like, I, I don't know. Is it? I, I don't know if that's <laughs> it's a deal. Four dollars. It's like uh, it's, <laughs> I don't know. I'll just, <laughs> there's no frame of reference. There's yeah. no frame of reference, right? So same thing with companies. They stand out. The companies that that produce a dollar a year that sell for two dollars or three dollars or five dollars, they stand out like you wouldn't believe, right? And all investors can identify that. And the thing is, I'm not a real estate investor. I'm not a stock investor. I'm just an investor. Mm-hmm that bought real estate. I'm just an investor that bought stocks. Stocks was a good deal, I would buy it. If it's not a good deal, I do nothing. Real estate became a good deal in 2009, so I bought real estate. Stocks became expensive, so it made the decision easy. So let's say you're looking at stocks and you're looking at real estate. One's more expensive, you're gonna ignore it. One gets cheaper, you're gonna look at that. And the same thing like this, it's the same thing. When you see eggs are cheaper, your eyes are gonna be like, that's what I'm looking at, that's what I want, right? So when eggs go to I don't know, $6 a carton, you just ignore it. You're like, I'm not eating eggs this week. Mm-hmm. I'm not buying real estate this week. I'm not buying stocks this week. So you just, you're always studying the markets and then you're just following wherever there's fluctuations. Yeah. And price disparities. There's always going to be a disparity. Not always. I would say 99% of the time, you're getting $3 eggs. Mm-hmm. Nothing changes. So you don't do anything. So 99% of the time, I don't do anything. Right? Charlie Munger said that wealth is made from waiting, usually. So in that 1% time, something goes crazy. You know, banks fail, credit crisis, the tech industry implodes. Something happens and then everything goes on sale. Everything goes on sale. And then because you've been waiting and sort of piling up cash, you just go out and you start just buying stuff. So what do you recommend doing during that waiting period? So like, well, that's a good question. Nothing's happening. There's no sales in the market. Eggs are at $3. What do you do with your money? Inflation's <laughs> going rampant. Like what? You need to put it somewhere. So what do you recommend people do or what do you do? So uh, I'll, I'll, I'll say what people probably should do. Again, I, don't, I can't give financial advice. because yeah, None of this advisor. is financial advice. Yeah. <laughs> this whole conversation. So, this, is just a, this is my opinion. So if you're just young, you should, the first book you should read is a little, little book of common sense investing by John Bogle, right? And you should just find a plan to invest consistently and regularly in a balanced portfolio. Just regularly and consistently in stocks in a, in, a, in a way that your financial advisor says is good for your personal situation. And you should do that early. Because the number one way, the easiest way to get rich is to start early. There's a huge difference between, between starting at age 20, 30, 40. And I would argue that if you start after age 40, like if you're 50 and you haven't started yet, it's probably too late. Mm-hmm. It's, it's probably over. You're, you're just uh, going to tread water until, you know, it's time to go. But uh, start early, invest consistently, month over month, week over week, take a portion of your pay. And, uh, and then when you finish your career, you finish living your life, you'll wake up retired, a bit older, and be like, oh, I got a couple million bucks. That's fine. Now, if you want to be an investor, then the first book you should read is anything to do with financial statements. Because to identify the dollar businesses and the price they're at, and if there's a deal, you have to know how to rip apart their financial statements. That's, that's the bottom line. And for that one, it's a lot more work. And then when there's nothing to do, like you were asking me, you are just studying the market. You are reading financial statements. And you're doing that for years on years. And then when there's something to buy, you've already read all this stuff. You've already studied it. Yeah. And then you just go in and you start buying. It's shopping time. Right? It's time to shop. Um, but again, from the vast majority of people, a balanced, diversified portfolio started when you're young. I don't care even if it's like 50 bucks a week or, or, or 100 bucks a month. You're just putting it in. Because you're not there to get rich at that time. You're there to build a habit. Right? If you mm. don't have the habit and you're trying to develop the habit after you're 40 or after you're 50, it's really hard. Habits are formed because you started young and you just did it. You didn't, you didn't wait until you felt like doing it. You didn't wait until you were in the mood to do it. Yeah. You just do it. 100 bucks a week, I'm just getting into the habit. And then by the time you're 30, 
the habit will be so ingrained, it'll be just so easy for you to do. And even at that point, you'll find that the money's growing faster, pretty fast actually, because you've been investing for 10, 15 years. You may find in 10, 15 years that the investments, because you've been doing it like that, are growing faster than your salary. At that point, you'll be like, now you feel like work is optional and you can just either scale back, try another job. You don't have to worry about getting let go. You're pretty much just doing whatever you want. Yeah, that's very interesting that the concept of thinking of investing as a habit where you just you're not trying to make money because most people go into it with the intention of like, I'm trying to turn 100 into two or okay. trying to get 20 X, 20, 20 percent return. So like this concept of like just putting the money in just so you get used to putting the money in as you grow older is very interesting. Yeah. So because a lot of people think of the outcome, they're like, I want to be a millionaire. I want to have a million bucks. Yeah, I want to have exactly. 10 million bucks. Right. That's not that's not how it works. Right. You build a habit that will guarantee you success and you just keep doing it. It's not like after two workouts, you're going to be like ripped and ready for the summer. That's, mm -hmm. that's not going to work like that. But if you just put in, you know, an hour a day, half an hour a day, whatever you can afford, yeah. after a year, you're going to look pretty good. You, you eat right uh, uh, consistently, you work out consistently, and it's going to happen. So it's really the habits. And that's another reason why I tell people the same thing happens if they have a bad habit. If I have a bad habit of using debt to invest, right, if I feed that habit, oh, um, I can use debt to buy the property. I can use debt to invest in this business. Oh, I can use debt to invest in real uh, stocks. You're feeding a bad habit. And the problem is, because people always ask me, hey, do you think I should leverage my way to, to speed up the process, <laughs> right? I'm like, no, you shouldn't. Not because it won't work, right? The worst outcome that you can have from leverage is winning. Because now the habit you have is, when I borrow, I win. Yeah. And then you're gonna, Keep feeding that habit, borrow, win, borrow, win. And it's going to happen 8, 10, 15 times in a row. And then on the 16th time, you lose everything. It's going to get liquidated. You get just totally. And I've seen it happen over and over again. Like throughout history, people just keep borrowing. They win. They reinforce that bad habit, which they think is good because they're winning. And then in the 16th, 17th, 20th year, they've spent all this time and energy and it, boom, lost everything. So you gotta make sure you feed the right habits, right? So that's really important. And living below your means is a good habit. Um, there's literally like three big mistakes. If you can avoid them and you can keep the habits of investing and using money to work for you, you probably will be fine, right? The problem is people in Toronto, especially high cost of living, they break the habits because, um, so I'll tell you what the habits are. Yeah. Or the, the things or the mistakes. You, these three habits, these three mistakes, if you break them, it's probably over. I'll go from the smallest to the highest. So debt for, debt for college. That's, that's a mistake. And it could get to become a problem. You hear people with like college debt in their 40s and 50s. Like who wants to pay college debt in their 40s and 50s? Like nobody wants That's crazy. Nobody wants that, right? So you got to be very careful, right? Number two, uh, debt for new cars. Right. So, you, but you, know, you know, I've been studying for so long, you know, I'm a student. I can finally afford my own car. I'm going to get a brand new uh, Lexus or BMW and I'm going to you know, get it new right off the lot. It's going to be the new color. No one's going to have it. Mistake number two. And as soon as it goes <laughs> off the lot, it already it's depreciated like, 20, right, it's 20%. <laughs> and the third mistake is overpaying for a home. A home is such a huge cost in Toronto. You trip over that, like you break the 20, 30, and 3 rule for buying a home, it's probably over. What, what is the 20, 30, and 3 rule for those who don't know? So, so for people who buy a home, 20, 30, and 3 means 20% down. 30 means 30% 30 of your gross household income, right? Let's say you make 100 grand gross household. Yeah. 30%, 30 grand should be able to cover all your home ownership costs. Pro um, insurance, uh, property tax, maintenance, landscaping, capital expenditures, the roof, the heating, cooling, all that stuff, utilities. 30%, yeah. 30 grand, no more. And then three, and I can see four, three to four times your gross household income is the maximum price you should pay. You pull in 100 grand, you shouldn't go above three or 400,000 
for shelter, right? You break those rules, and a lot of people do. If you break those rules, you will sacrifice your retirement. Retirement's done. Uh, being rich is done. What people don't understand is that the rich buy shelter after they get rich. The poor and middle class, they buy shelter hoping to get rich. They're like, I'm going to buy this house. It's going to make me rich. Yeah. That's how the poor and middle class think, right? The fact is 65% of people in Canada, probably higher in Toronto, own a home. But there's only 1% that are rich. That's a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Two-thirds of adults own a home, but only 1% are rich. So it should tell you right there that the rich are doing something different. They're not dumping all their money into primary residence. So that's the third and the biggest mistake. Yeah, that's a very strange thing to me where people buy homes to live in and they consider them investments. Like my parents did it and I always got arguments with them like, how is this an investment if you pay for it? (laughs) It's so true. (laughs) Like you're paying so much money to like, like maintain it, upkeep it. This isn't an investment. And they just say, no, no, it is for our future because like later we'll be able to sell it. And I'm like... Yeah. It just never made sense. And so many people have that mentality where they think their their house that they live in is an investment. It's true. It's like the American Canadian dream. And I'm like, this yeah. doesn't add up for me personally. Yeah, because the, the fact is, like I learned in school, most of anyone who goes through the formal education system, they're not financially literate. Mm-hmm. They're just people who are 30, 40, 50. They literally, and I can tell from direct experience, have the same money knowledge as if they were 10. Because I have, a, I have an 11 year old daughter, I talk to her about money, and she knows more about money than adults because I've taught her that way. Yeah. But the thing is, like, if she, if I didn't teach her about money, and I've talked to most like 30, 40, 50 year olds, I'm like, your knowledge level about money is about the same as my daughter's, less actually now. That's but, crazy, right? But I could see it. I could totally see that. So they can't tell the difference between an investment and a non-investment. They can't tell. If the price goes up for them, it's an investment. If the price goes down, it's not an investment. That's how they, that's literally how their decision making has become. And that's yeah. literally a 10 year old, right? So, and, and, te- and school and, and teachers just don't teach financial literacy. That's the bottom line. They never did it in the 70s and 80s when I was looking for it. Mm-hmm. And I've been doing my own thing. And now I come back as a 50 year old and I'm like, oh, there's not, still not teaching it now. Like I'm doing, I'm helping my, my kid do their, her math homework. Like there's no money in here. It's math. It's arithmetic. Why isn't there any money questions in here? Yeah, this is literally where arithmetic applies the most. <laughs> We're trying to add up money. <laughs> you teach people about investments, financial literacy, um, just talking about money, all types of news on TikTok, Instagram. What made you decide to get into that and do that? Yeah, that was an accident. So um, that's a great question. So what happened was before the pandemic, my daughter was on TikTok, right, and watching the videos. Yeah. And, and, you know, I wanted to know what my daughter was involved in. And that was like three years ago. So she was like eight at the time. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. And I never went onto social media because I just thought it was a lot of time with no real benefit. But pandemic locked everything down. We couldn't, we couldn't go out to restaurants. We couldn't travel. I couldn't do any hobbies. Mm-hmm. Um, e- even the neighborhood park where I used to take my daughter was closed. Yeah, that was crazy times. Right? Couldn't do anything. (laughs) So there was like yellow tape around all the parks. Yeah, that was brutal. Right? So even walking on the street, walking your dog, people would give you kind of weird looks like, why are you out? You shouldn't be out. But but then I was like, you know, TikTok's pretty interesting. I could just, there's no editing. There's no Photoshopping. There's no extra work. I can just speak for 15 seconds and then send it. And that's it. That's the beginning and end. It's literally no time commitment. And I didn't want to spend time like editing and doing like um, any type of work in addition to what content I was making. So yeah. I just I just put a couple lessons out there on TikTok about real estate and stocks. And then, you know, at the time I got like, you know, five views. Then it became 10. And then it kept growing. And then all of a sudden I started getting millions of views a month, like literally four or five million views a month. We now have over 350,000 followers. And like, it just resonated because I think people sort of felt like how I did. It's like, what's the point of all this? Like, why am I grinding? What am mm-hmm. I grinding for? Like, it seems like when I finish grinding at school, I just go to a company and just there's a boss there cracking the whip, asking me to grind some more. <laughs> where, where am I going? Yeah. Right. So I think it resonated a lot. 
And especially when I talked about like, um, uh, like how school doesn't teach us and this is where you need to fill in the gaps to sort of actually have a chance to be free, people just, just took to it. So TikTok became my platform of choice um, because it was easy and I had nothing else to do. I really do think that people needed to hear it because this whole like grind culture, work hard, um, retire, like work for 40 years and then you might get a chance to retire yeah. and your house will increase in price and you'll be able to sell it. Um, people were just sick of that whole narrative and they just wanted to like, and that's where your content came in because you were teaching, giving like practical advice and also saying things that you've done that worked. Yeah, I don't give advice again. So I sort of provide education and my perspective. Yeah, so I talk sorry. about... <laughs> <laughs> I gotta be clear, I'm educating. Yeah, so I don't give any advice. Like I yeah. don't tell people like you should do this because mm -hmm. I don't know who you are, right? Yeah. So and people will DM me and say, okay, what advice can I say? I can't give you advice. But I will tell you what I did and... And I tell people to focus on the things because if you, the thing is this, right? Um, if you don't get financially literate, like if you keep your knowledge level as a 10 year old, then the next teacher you're gonna have is not gonna be your friends, it's not gonna be your parents, it's not gonna be your teachers. The person that will teach you about money is capitalism. You're gonna walk into capitalism and capitalism will teach you. And capitalism is not a very nice teacher, right? Capitalism, if you don't know anything and you say, hey, I'm gonna go into the corporate world and I'm gonna let capitalism teach me about money, it's gonna take your money. And you're gonna be in a very bad situation. So when you're going through school or you're young or you're just starting out, you better start educating yourself because if you're waiting for the world to educate you, it's gonna be a very harsh lesson. And if you make it, hit or miss. And it's called the 1% for a reason because 99% don't quite get there. So you just can't leave it up to chance. Yeah. Um, so it's very important to start. That's another big thing is like being intentional with it. Because yeah. I feel like a lot of people just like drift through their finances. They kind of just get their paycheck and then they spend some money out. And like they don't, they never set a time where they're like, okay, I need to figure this out. I need a game plan. They kind of just drift through their life. And like, like you said, capitalism comes in and the market just, it hits them. And they have no retirement. They have no investments. They're just like, all of a sudden they're 50 and they still have to work. Right, so it's the same thing. You, you, because you don't know any better, you make those mistakes that we talked about earlier in the show and then now you, you've dug a small hole, you've dug a bigger hole, now it's even even bigger yeah. like, and uh, you don't even recognize it. But now when you finally realize it, like, hey, maybe I need to get my stuff together, you know, my shit together, but you're 40 now. So now you're 50. And like you said, sometimes you get to a point and it might be too, too late, late to start. It's too late, right? So, and, and the thing is like, um, the big problem is actually, it's not how. Everyone always asks me how. How do I get rich? How do I invest in real estate? It's not about the how. It, I mean, it is. But it starts even earlier. If you have a negative view of money, uh, rich people take advantage of others, um, um, rich people take advantage of the poor, money is the root of all evil. If you believe that at your core, you'll never be rich, period. Because you don't want to be that person that is evil. You don't want to take advantage of people, so you'll push money away. Mm -hmm. So even if I told you step by step how to get from here to $10 million, you'll be like, yeah, but I don't really wanna be a bad person. And then mm -hmm. you'll stop, you'll, you'll self-destruct. So the first, thing you need to change is really your mindset about, I think money can be used to help people. I think money is, is a store of, uh, a medium of exchange. Like if someone finds this valuable, they'll say, listen, I find this valuable, I wanna give you some money for it. And it's not good or bad, it's just something how they express, how they identify value. And then you have a better shot of becoming wealthy because you don't have a negative mindset. A lot of people come with baggage because you know, they see their parents grinding for money or they lost their home in a recession. Mm -hmm. They lost their job in a recession. They see like all this stuff in the media about like tax the rich and this and that. So they get, they get capitalism starts teaching them a lesson that money's evil or that's the lesson that they get. Yeah. And so they'll never be rich because they already have a negative view. So it's already over. So it doesn't mean matter. It doesn't matter if someone gives them all the hows in the world after that it's done. You believe it's bad. Yeah. Right? You can't be good at hockey if you think hockey is bad. It just doesn't work. Yeah, that's a very interesting thing about finance where it's, I'm learning 
as I grow up, it's like a very psychological. There's a big psychological aspect because, yes. like for example, something like basketball or hockey, like I can never outperform like Sidney Crosby or Wayne Gretzky in hockey. Yeah. Like a hundred times we could play and they'll outperform me a hundred times. But with like finance and like investing, me and the top investor, like there's we c- I could compete. Yeah, you can with, do very with, well. With, with anyone and everyone. Like, uh, there's different levels of the game for sure, right? So someone who makes a million is going to be different. My, my factor is 10. Always talk to someone who has 10 times more than you. They'll teach you something new, right? Mm. So if you have a million, talk to someone who's making 10 or who has 10, and then they're probably doing something different from you, and they can teach you something. If you have 10, talk to someone who's making 100. They're mm-hmm. probably doing something different from you. Right? They'll teach you something to get you to the next level. If you want to get to a million and you talk to a guy who has 50 grand, probably not going to help you too much, right? So it, it, there is levels to this game. Yeah. And yes, there's a, some, some data that came out in Bloomberg that said that one-third of people who make over a quarter million a year in salary are living paycheck to paycheck. One in three. One in three people who make high salaries have no money. And the, the fact is, again, like I said, going back to the fact that people just have the same knowledge level about money as a 10-year-old, making a lot of money is not the same as being good with money. Mm. And people don't understand that. So when you talk about getting rich, they keep saying, I'm going to be a doctor, I'm going to be a lawyer. Making a lot of money doesn't mean you're being good with money. There's a lot of people who make a lot of money, apparently one in three, they got nothing, right? because they haven't learned anything. Their knowledge level is still stuck back when they were like 30 years younger. So it's important to live below your means, number one. If you can't live below your means, the game's over. Like you're spending more than, you can't even invest anything. You have nothing left over, all right? And people always ask me like, oh, I can't save any money. It's so expensive to live in Toronto. I I don't know where the money would come from. So this is another problem. So, and, and I totally get it because I had no money. I was making four bucks an hour. Like I was like, oh, my money's all gone. So what I found is that there's a trick that uh, rich people actually do. So the trick is most people, what they do is they pay for all their stuff, their food, their shelter, their utilities, their kids, themselves, clothes, education, whatever. And then they say, okay, if I have anything left over, I'll invest it then. But usually nothing's left over because you've spent it all, right? Mm -hmm. So the rich people do the opposite. I get money. And immediately 10 or 20% goes to investing, goes to an emergency fund, and it goes to investing. Now I'm living on 90% of it. So now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to adjust my shelter, my clothing, uh, where I go to eat, how much I spend on groceries on the 90% or the 80% that's left over, right? So the investing is already taken care of. My future is already done. I'm living my life on this. And people were like, well, how do you do that? Well, it's simple. Let's say you make 50000 a year mm-hmm. and someone asks you to save 10%. Most people are like, I don't have 10% to save. Find someone who's making 45,000 and live like them. I guarantee you there's someone making 10% less than you who started off worse than you, makes less than you, and will end up more, having more than you. Live like the guy who's making 10% less. Yeah. That's the lifestyle you should be living. You shouldn't be making 50 grand and living the lifestyle of someone making 75, which is what most people do. So true. And then you're dead, right? So find someone who's, who's basically making 20% less, copy their lifestyle. Drive the car they drive. You know, use the, the homes that they're kind of shopping for. Don't look for like, hey, I'm going to look for that million-dollar home with my $100,000 salary. It's like, not going to work out. <laughs> it, it's strange. A lot of people tend to do that. The reason why people do that, they buy luxury goods, and they know they're sabotaging the future. They're not, they're not stupid. They know. Mm-hmm. The reason people do that is because they feel that there's no future. It's too hard, and even if I save 100 bucks a week, I'm not gonna get the 1.7 million that most Canadians feel they need to retire. Like, it's impossible. Yeah. So if you, if you don't feel it's possible, it goes back to mindset, you're going to go with the second best option. If I can't become rich, the least I can do is look rich, right? Because I know I can't get there. So I'm just going to buy stuff that the rich people wear and I'll front like them. And that'll make me feel good temporarily. 
until you're 50, then you're like, I feel like crap. I don't know why I did that. But that's what people do because, again, it goes back to the mindset. You need to believe it's possible. I don't care if you're making, you know, how much money you're making. 30 grand a year, $15 an hour. You got to believe it's possible mm-hmm. because if you don't, um, that basically means that you've, you've given up on hope. Like you've just thrown hope out the window. Yeah, mindset's a big thing to yeah, start. Like, for everything. I yeah. agree. One of the things you mentioned is you you're inve- you do your investing in the U.S. as opposed to Canada. Yes. Whether it's your real estate or stocks. Why, why is that? Why is that you decided to do your investments there rather than here? That's a good question. That's a really good question. So um, obviously I said I started reading Peter Lynch, and mm-hmm. he's an American author. Yeah. yeah. Warren Buffett, American investor. So I was influenced very early. John Bogle, American I was influenced very early by the books I read that were American, but it was reinforced by my parents. So my parents, um, what would happen is that every time the Canadian dollar got strong, like really close to the American dollar, they'd be like, oh, it's time to get some American dollars. And I'm like, why are you doing that? They'd run to the bank, exchange your money, you know, one to one or whatever it was at the time. And they would have American dollars. And they'd be like, yeah, we got our American dollars. I'm like, I don't understand. What are you doing? He's like, oh, when we travel, we can't use Canadian dollars. It's too weak. You know, we're going to get the American dollars now while it's advantageous to do so. And in the future, if we travel, this is they didn't call it the reserve currency. They just said this is a very strong currency that we can travel anywhere with. Right. Mm -hmm. Not that they traveled much. Um, I guess they had the idea that one day they would travel and they would need American dollars. So Mm -hmm. I I was up from from reading the investors to watching my parents hoard American dollars when it was advantageous, I was like, that's interesting. Um, everyone seems to talk about America. You know, Warren Buffett says don't bet against America, all that stuff. So I was like, okay. I think if the American dollar spends most of its time stronger than the Canadian dollar, then I made the, the next logical leap forward and I said, then living in Canada, paying Canadian expenses with American dollars should be pretty easy. Like if I had American dollars and my costs were Canadian dollars, I'm like, not all the time, but most times it'll probably be easier for me than someone who makes Canadian money and has to pay Canadian money because there's no win there, right? Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, so I'm going to start investing in American companies, American businesses, American stocks, American real estate. I tried to invest in Canada, but the numbers didn't make sense for real estate, right? So I was like, started there. And when I started... And everyone's like, well, you know, it's easy to say now because you have all this American money. The Canadian dollar, when I started, was like 65 cents. Right now, it's at 72. It was seven cents lower. It was very hard to collect American assets, stocks or otherwise, right? But I did it because I knew down the road, I will be grateful that I had American money coming in. Not all the time because we were at parity just at the credit crisis just 15 years ago. It went one to one or 10 cents over. But I go, it's going to be easier going forward. And again, reserve currency, America has all the best businesses. I'm like, so I stuck with that plan. Turned out okay. (laughs) I mean, it makes a lot of sense that that leeway of having American assets and having Canadian expenses, you already have uh, 30% to work with. So it's kind of... And when smart, you tra- it's smart. And when you travel, you don't have to worry about it, right? A lot of times you're like, oh, I can't travel because my Canadian dollar is worth like, you know, 10 cents yeah. or whatever. I and can't you have to go- convert it. And like- yeah, and then eat the fees there. And you're just like, oh, my goodness, right? For me, I just, when I travel, I just take my American dollars and it's good everywhere. Mm-hmm. But I want to go anyway, so. What are your thoughts on the Canadian housing market as a real estate investor? Whether it's Toronto or everywhere in Canada. So remember I said like, one of the biggest mistakes you can make is overpay for shelter, right? Yeah. That risk is very high in high cost of living cities like Toronto. The risk is very high. Like it's very high risk that you blow up your retirement in Toronto because shelter costs are so high. You actually have to work doubly hard in order to minimize your shelter costs. Like if you don't have parents to live with, you gotta like find roommates, you gotta like minimize that shelter cost because it's so easy in Toronto to completely destroy your budget with, with, with where you're living, right? Whether you're renting or owning, it doesn't matter, right? Uh, right now, owning is significantly worse 
than renting. And I know people are like going to argue with me on that and say like, well, rent is going up. It's, it doesn't matter how much rent has gone up. I know what the rent is, right? So, you know, for a one bedroom, rent is going to be like $3,000, but it's going to cost you like two hundred dollars or $150,000 down a mortgage of another 650000 to carry and then all the expenses associated with that. So I don't see like it's bad both ways, right? But a bit bad, worse when you own. And you just need to compress that, that price down. And why are we here? I'm not sure why we're here. I wish I knew why we're here because the last real estate crash we had, I was in university. It was in 1989-90 and the market collapsed. Prices of homes at that time, the average price was like 280, 250. That sounds cute. $250,000 for a semi-detached home or the typical home, median yeah. home. And the price collapsed by half over six years. It just went straight down for six years. Prices collapsed. Uh, and it took, I don't know, another seven years to get back to where it was 13 years earlier, right? Like it took a long time to recover. And that was my generation. And every generation that came after me, the millennials, the Gen Z, they haven't known that, right? So they think real estate only goes up, only goes up, safe investment. So they don't mind taking on massive amounts of debt, putting all their money into shelter because real estate only goes up. I don't care if it's a home. I don't care if it's not an investment. I'm just going to put money here because I know in another 10 years, it'll double, triple. And maybe it will. Maybe it won't. I don't know. But if you overpay, I know for sure what will happen. It might go up. But for sure, if you overpay for home, you have no retirement accounts because there's no money left over. You're, you're feeding the house, right? You're hoping that's your retirement. Your home's a retirement account, yeah. right? So you won't have your RSPs. You won't have your TFSAs. And if you have kids, they probably don't have education funds. They don't have RESPs because everything is feeding the home. But that's how Canadians want to bet right now because of what they've seen, right? Yeah. So, um, and if it doubles or triples uh, by the time they retire, um, they're not going to be as well off because, you, again, you have to feed the home. They're not going to be as well off as if it was an investment portfolio, but at least that'll help. But if it doesn't go straight up, like if you... If, they, if, it, if something happens, they're done because now they don't have that appreciating home and now they don't have the retirement accounts or the education funds or, or and, right? So <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't know how we got here. We, we basically commoditized or we made it into an investment, the home. Uh, we made the home into an investment. Everyone has that mentality of they're just trying Everyone to own that. a house. And, and I saw that turn of the century. Everyone in America, home's the best investment ever. Everyone piled into homes, just piled into homes. And when it blew up, I was just like, this is, these are free. Like these homes were like, home was the same price as a car. It's ridiculous. And this is in 2008? 2008, 2009, right? So home prices kept going up. They'd never gone down in history, I think, since the Great Depression. And so it was the same idea. Homes are great investments. You know, if you said anything against that or if you showed any math that showed that maybe it may not be, yeah. you know, you got shut down, ridiculed, all that stuff. And then 2006 happened. Everything blew up. So at that time, just to give you some context, Toronto was selling for 2009. A Toronto condo would sell for $500 a square foot. Square foot, 500 bucks. That's cute too, right? Mm -hmm. So $500 a square foot. But when I was looking in Phoenix... A pretty big city, over a million population, entire economy, this and that. $50 a square foot. $50 a square foot meant that you could buy a one-bedroom, one-bath condo for 20 grand. 20 grand, the price of a Honda Civic, brand new, you would buy a home. Like you would buy your, your like I guess I started off, my first home was a one-bedroom, one-bathroom condo. Yeah. Buy a home. And at the time, for 20 grand. And, and we're not talking about, like, uh, I, a lot of people say, like, oh, well, 20 grand, it must have been a crime zone or, like, you know, <laughs> yeah. drug infested. No, it was actually right off of South Mountain Golf Course. Golf course, condo, across the street. 20 grand. If you want a two-bedroom because you want to splurge, 35 grand. 35 grand, you get a nice two-bedroom, two-bath condo, right? If you don't want to spend... Uh, if you want to spend more than 20 grand. And this was due to the whole housing crash yeah. of 2000. So these things were like 200 grand down to 20. Literally 90% collapse, 80 to 90% collapse in price. Because again, it's not an investment. It's just a speculation. Price goes up and down. Who knows where mm -hmm. it goes in the future? Roll the dice, right? 
The price of eggs went. Yeah, it's <laughs> collapsed, it right? So then when I was looking at that, I was like, okay, so this thing I could buy for, say, 40 grand. Let's just not say it's like the cheapest of the cheap. Two-bedroom bathroom, two-bed, two-bath condo for 40 grand. And I looked at the rents, right? Long history of rents there. and made sure it was in a nice area. Again, no crime and stuff like that. And it was next to a golf course. And I said, like, it could rent for $750 a month. I was like, I'll make my money back in five years or less. Same thing with the stock. I'll make my money back in five years or less. Or, or I will collect in five years the entire price. The entire price of the property I will have collected in rent. I won't keep it all because I have to pay expenses and stuff. But that's a pretty good deal. So then I said, like, it's time to do that. And stock market has already have, have already um, corrected, right? So what happened was the stock market went down first. 2007, it just collapsed. I spent all my money buying stock. And then real estate in America kept going down to 2009. And I was like, damn, I have no money. I want to buy this real estate, but I, I'm running out of money. So my wife and I, I talked to her. I had to talk to her because I said, like, I think we should sell our home. So I was living in Mississauga at the time. It's like, why do you want to sell our home? We had a baby. Like, why do you want to sell our home? It's like, I showed her what we could buy in America. And I, I said, we've already run out of cash. We, I bought what I could, but I'm running out of money. And she's like, where are we going to live? I said, well, we can move into a one-bedroom. She's like, we have a baby. I said, listen, uh, I understand. Like, you know, one, one bedroom, one bath, married with a baby, not ideal. Yeah. But this is a once-in-a-century event. Like, it'll never come again. Like, once-in-a-century. She's like, okay. So we sold our home, took the money funneled it more into U.S. real estate. And then the money that was funneled there, like that paid, like that was it's worth way more than our home is now. So back then, like I said, um, property would sell for $500 a square foot and uh, Phoenix was like $50 a square foot. Like since then, Toronto property probably doubled, maybe 1,000 a square foot, 1,200 if you're lucky. But that, the Phoenix properties now are like five times, right? Not just double, like five times. And the rent has tripled. So not only has the value gone up, but the amount of American cash that's being pushed out is, is massive. So let's just give you an idea. If you spent a million dollars 15 years ago on a Toronto condo, you would get how much in rent? Maybe four grand, five grand, maybe six. Let's say you're six. Like you're, you have like today's rents back then, six grand. Six grand uh, a month. A month. Right? So in a year, six times 12, right? 70 grand, say, right? 70 grand in... That's, you're not getting that because that's like today's rents back then. But you're, you're making 50 grand, say, like a year in rent mm. if you bought million dollars in Toronto condos back then. In Phoenix, if you spent a million dollars, and again, the dollar was one-to-one, -one, same, right? There's no change. You would pull in over $210,000 a year in rent. And that was depressed. 210000 four times more rent for the same price. I was like, this is a no-brainer. Like, this is, the, this is the dollar egg, right? So I was just like, and then once that money started coming in, I was like, now nah, I don't even need to work, but I'll still work. At the time, my salary peaked out at like 140,000. I was making 140,000 in sales. I went from 22 to 100, went down, up and down, up to 140. But then at that point, I was like, I don't even need to work. Yeah. So then I just said like, I'll just not work. You just do what you want now. Yeah, now I just don't work. So are you retired by definition? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I don't know what retired means. Uh, I still invest. You don't need to work. Yeah, I don't need to yeah, work. That's, yeah. That's how I think of retirement. You don't need to. You don't have to. I don't to. have to. But you're not like chilling on a beach. I couldn't do that. Because <laughs> that's what people envision. They hear retired. They just think, oh, I'm going to go to like Bali or Jamaica or Mexico. And I'm just going to be sitting on a beach sipping cocktails ne 365 days a year. Never work for money. Ever. I don't care what age you are, how much money you have. Never work for money because you're going to do things you hate because you're working for money. You should be working because you love it and it will give you some skills to help you grow. For example, some of the best skills are marketing, advertising, sales, right? Meeting people, communicating, public speaking. If you get those five or six skills while you're working a job that you have fun with, with really cool people, you should do that. Don't do a job because it's for the money. Like you will hate yourself. You'll want to quit every day. You'll get depressed. You'll have anxiety. Um, and if you get... To play devil's advocate, because I know someone's going to hear you say that and they're going to say something along the lines of, oh, that's easy for you to say. You don't understand my bills. You don't understand what I have to go through. 
I have to keep my job. So what would you what would you say to that as like they have to keep their job, but also you should still learn these skills. How should they go about doing that? Again, this goes back to all the mistakes that people make because they're not financially literate, right? Yeah. So this is what happens typically. You graduate, right? Um, you have student loans. Or you buy a car. Um, you buy a home. You have a kid. You buy a bigger home. So now your costs keep going, right? At a certain point, you have to work for the money. You have no choice. When you graduated, you didn't have to work for money right away. You did have to work for money, but just to pay minimal stuff because maybe your shelter is still cheap. You're rooming with like three of your friends. You don't have a car. You're taking public transit or you're biking. You don't have a kid. You don't have a, a need for a bigger detached home. You have none of that. So your costs are low. So then you start digging. I got the car. I have the home. I have the kid. I have the bigger home. Now you have to work for money. You're done. You've already dug the hole so deep that you have no choice. So again, it's all about starting early with the right framework and you're working for skills. Your cost of living is low. You're using money to work for you. You're not working for money because you don't need that much at that point, right? You don't need as much as you will need later. So you're not working for money. You're having money work for you. And then by the time you have all that other stuff, you, you, you get married, you have a kid, you need a bigger home. Your money's been working for you for like 10, 15 years. Now it's a lot easier. Mm -hmm. Right. So let's say you're working for a salary. If you dug your hole, your salary would have to pay for everything. But let's say you started using money to work for you. In 15 years, you're like, oh, I have all this stuff, but my investments are paying for half of it. So now I don't need to work as hard for money. I can do something I like, make less money, but my bills are all paid. Right. And then if I keep going for another 10 years uh, until I'm 50 or something, then they're all paid. All my bills are paid because I kept the discipline. I kept using money to work for me. Now my bills are all covered and I don't need to work, but I want to because I want to do something, yeah. right? So when people say like, um, it's easy for you to say, uh, it wasn't easy. I mean, I had to keep my cost of living low. I had a family and I moved back into a one bedroom. Yeah. How many people do that? How many people with a young child live in a one bedroom in Toronto? I did that. It wasn't that long ago a kid right? but I said listen I need to sacrifice that now because I don't want to work forever I literally do not want to die at my desk mm -hmm. that is not the future I'm picturing for myself <laughs> I was just playing devil's advocate no, because I know question. how people just from reading comments and seeing talking to people like, <laughs> yeah. they have this mentality of like oh you don't understand you don't understand but yeah. another thing they don't understand is like everyone that made it to a point well, not everyone, but most people that are self-made and did something great had to make these sacrifices. It wasn't all sunshine and rainbows. Like, yeah. like that. That's very interesting for me to hear that you sold your house. Yeah. With a family, like people thought I was insane. No, I could see that, and like you just knew in your heart, like, like you're like, this is, is a good decision because yeah. clearly it paid off. But yeah. at the time, to have the the discipline to just like. Yeah. As well as convincing your wife. I could imagine that conversation. My wife was pretty good because uh, my wife was pretty, not, not that bad. My, actually, my wife was actually pushing me to invest more. Mm. She was like, go into debt. Yeah. We can buy more. And I'm like, listen, listen, I have my limits. I'm not going to like put our family at risk by going into debt. But so she was really good. She actually pushed me. And we already had success in Phoenix. It wasn't like we had no success. This was our first purchase. Mm. We had success. And then, and then I was suggested we can still keep going. The prices are still okay. You want to sell our home? And she was like, that's a big step. Where we're going to live, this and that. But after a while, she's like, okay, yeah. I mean, we've been doing well for like whatever, four or five years. Let's just keep it going. Right? How, so. how important was it to have a partner who's supportive um, in your journey? Like how, how did that factor in? Because it's so funny you mentioned that. So um, 100%, your money future or your situation with money is going to be greatly impacted by nothing more than who you pick to marry. It. Nothing is going to affect your money situation more than who you pick to marry. Mm. Like, uh, I, I like to say that your biggest expense in your entire lifetime will be tax, right? Tax is your biggest expense. Most people don't know that. They're like, oh, maybe it's my, my rent. or No, no, tax is your biggest expense because when you make it, you get taxed. When you spend it, you get taxed. You get taxed, right? So tax is your biggest expense. And I, was always, I always said that that was your biggest expense, but not really. If you marry wrong, that'll be your biggest expense. That will be where the rug gets taken out from under you potentially. So yeah, so you, you better um, 
be lucky, I guess. I don't know how else to say it. <laughs> because I was going to say there's a formula to find. I was like, no, there's not really. So hopefully you're lucky. I was going to ask, how, how, what do you look for? Like, what, what are some indicators that this is a good investment? It's interesting because there are some uh, studies that I read that one of the biggest indicators that a relationship will not work, I'm not saying what will work, but will not work. The biggest indicator is contempt. So if you share your dreams or your story or your tough day and your partner shows contempt, eye rolling, not listening to you in terms of like brushing, that's not a big deal, like contempt, mm -hmm. that's the number one indicator that it's not gonna end up very well. So if you see that or if I saw that, I would not be there personally. Yeah, no, <laughs> I could see how that really like, because there's, the one person who's supposed to be your support system yeah. isn't supporting you. Like you're already you're already going through whatever you're going through during yeah, your work day to come home and have to battle another battle. I know. Just... It's just too much. <laughs> yeah, it's I could, true. I could see how that's not that's not something that I would want either. Yeah. It also helped that my wife grew up poor as well. We both grew up poor. She had student loans and um, and so you know uh, it helps that you come from similar upbringing as well. So okay, well. I think that's a good good spot to end it. Um, I want to say thank you to Creator Club for providing the space for us. Thank you for coming in and having a conversation with me. I hope it was insightful and you guys learned something. I had a good time. It's good. Yeah, I think this is a good place to call it. Thanks, Mel.